Want to advertise your business in a cost-effective way? It's time to give podcast advertising a try. Research shows a high rate of podcast listeners made a purchase as a result of an ad they heard on a podcast. Visit podbean.com slash brands to launch a cost-effective podcast advertising campaign in minutes. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands. Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. Okay, so the, the big day is coming uh, for a lot of people uh, getting ready to send those kiddos back to school. Maybe that means sending them back into the living room uh, where they've got their computer set up uh, or in some places. Yes, they are putting them right back in the classroom. Uh, thanks again to everybody for uh, joining on with us this week and giving us some uh, listening love. Uh, really appreciate that. You're listening to Yolitics. Jason Wheeler here with Jason Whiteley. Uh, Jason, are your kiddos, uh, are they online or are they going to be back in person right away? Yes, that's a good question. For our listeners who don't know, you and I are like four days apart in age. Yes. Yes. Um, You're older. You have. I know that. I'm older, but your children (laughs) are older. You planned this a little better than I did, or maybe I planned it better. I don't know. Or maybe I didn't plan is the problem. Maybe that is it. But you have two kids in college, I believe. Mm My two kids are like in, you know, elementary school, starting elementary school and in elementary school. So uh, it's an issue here at the Whiteley House, man. You know, w- what are we going to do? So my kids start back next Tuesday, August 17th, and they are going to start online up until September the 8th. And then the district's going to you know decide what to do from there. I- I'm fine with that. I-, I really am fine with that. I, I think that... I would feel okay with them going back. I feel pretty confident in my school's ability to handle this. I'm just not sure what's happening at, at all levels of government. Nobody is getting along in government on this. No one can can come up with a solid plan on what to do and everyone be on board with this. You know, we all have a common enemy in this, but of course, politics is, you know, paramount. Yeah, we have a common enemy in this, and we're all fighting each other and over some pretty basic things, too, still, as classes are set to resume here. And there's so many unknowns, Jason, for you, uh, for me, too, uh, and for so many other parents uh, all around this state right now. And so I think everybody is looking around for answers, and one of the places that they look for answers, or some of the places, are those that have started earlier than everybody else and we found one of those places it's a small sample though that's the thing Uh, we don't know if this is going to be indicative of what we see with everyone but we're looking at this small sample today to figure out are there some lessons to be learned and uh, that small sample in question is keen isd if you don't know about keen isd uh, we forgive you uh, because as i said it's small Uh, it is about a 30 minute or so drive south of fort worth that's where you find keen isd and we're talking right now with the superintendent there of that district uh, about maybe what lessons can be learned. Were there surprises? Uh, was there something other districts should know? Uh, we had all those questions, and we're going to ask him now.
Ricky, so you guys are a week into the school year so far. How's it going, man? You know, it's going probably better than we could have expected. How so? Uh, you know, we pre- prepared. Well, we prepared hard for it. And you never know what the kids' attitude's going to be when they show up. Parents' attitude. Uh, there's so much out there in the media that day to day, it seems like opinions change. And when we showed up Tuesday morning, we saw about 800 kids with smiles on their face, uh, protected by masks, of course, but you could see it in their eyes, uh, excited to be back at school. Uh, we got the other 200 kids lined up with uh, online virtual learning. And it just seems that a lot of the comments that we heard on uh, social media afterwards were besides the mask and the social distancing, it felt like real school. You know, that was our main goal, Jason, was for our kids to come and feel like they were back at school. So uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what this has been like after one week of it, because there's a lot of districts all across Texas uh, sort of, you know, ready to jump into the game here uh, because it's coming up and they could maybe learn some things uh, from you all there. Has there been something in that first week of school and having students back again, has there been something that just didn't work or that is taking way more time than you thought it would take? What what might be the hiccup? Well, I, I won't say that it's taking more time than we were afraid it would take, but it's taken a lot of time and it's something that you have to think about. But something simple as how are you gonna feed kids the very first morning? When they're showing up to school, they don't have ID badges. We don't know who's coming and yet you've got to get them through a cafeteria line and still get them to class by eight o'clock. That took a lot of planning and it took a lot of uh, flying by the seat of your pants once it happened. So that's one of the, that's one of the big things that first day was how do you feed your kids when they haven't actually been to school yet? Ricky, give us the lay of the land. What's it like when a kid shows up to school, they, they, they walk up to the front door, do you stop them there and start checking temperatures or what happens, man? We don't actually check temperatures of the kids when they come. We ask the parents to self-screen them before they come to school. The CDC had put out some recommendations and that was a recommendation they did not make because it was not necessarily a valid uh, gauge of whether or not they had COVID. So when one of our kids comes to school, uh, surprisingly, another thing that surprised us with the start of school was how well our students uh, wore the mask and went by the protocols. I know all summer long, I was really afraid that we would have a battle with our kids about putting those masks on, that it would be like the old belt policy or your ID badge policy where all day long you'd be saying, pull up your mask, pull up your mask. Kids came and I would say probably 85% of them had their own mask when they got out of the car. That shocked me early. We handed out masks and neck gaiters to the ones who did not. And they really, they really participated well in that. They will come in, they have to be in mask from the time they get on campus till the time they leave in any kind of transit when they're out in the public. Uh, sometimes our kids, when they're in a classroom, if they are able to socially distance, they can take a mask break. Of course, our nine-year-olds and below and third grade down, uh, they are able to take mask breaks in the classroom. Our students then, they wait, they go to the cafeteria, they eat breakfast, they go to class, and then pretty much it's just a normal day. We have hmm. made uh, very few procedural changes in the way that they operate during the day, besides the fact of stressing uh, the hand sanitizer at every entrance. Uh, the last minute of class, they stand up away from their desk and the teacher spray disinfectant on the desk so that the new students can come into hmm. a clean spot. But outside of that, we're trying to have regular school. 
Hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what is changed for the students as far as learning goes? Are they still getting the, 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 the typical learning that they would normally get right now? Or are some of these procedures eating up part of that day? You know, definitely they're eating up some of the day. You typically have 45, 47-minute class. takes a little longer to get started because you're having to check roll for your kids that are home. So unlike normally where you would just, you know, check your roll, see who's there and ready to go, you're also having to make sure. We're a very technologically rich district, but we're in a city that the Internet is not that strong and that fast. So we do have a lot of students who, you know, they've got to get online, make sure they're, they're checking in beginning of the period. And then, of course, at the end, Whenever you're trying to clean, you're losing some time there. However, we know from the spring that it is very difficult to teach remotely. The, the absolute best way for a kid to learn is to be in the classroom with a teacher. Even those students and those parents who are staying home right now, they would still tell you that the best way that wasn't for COVID would be in the classroom. So we really feel that even though it eats up some of that 45 minutes, the, the 40 or the 35 that we're getting, is still way better than if they were all at home. So our teachers are embracing that. They're, they're making some adjustments. One of the most difficult things that our teachers are struggling with is most teachers that are good by nature are perfectionists. They want to give everything they can to their students. And we met Friday after school with a group of about 10 teachers to get a recap of the week. And probably their biggest concern was the fact that they didn't feel like they were being able to reach the kids through the computer like they were reaching the kids in the classroom. Well, let me ask you then there, Ricky, are are they getting a different level of education? Are we seeing a disparity between these 200 who are online right now versus the 800 who are in person as far as you can see at this early stage? I would say not yet at the early stage because we're just now trying to figure it all out. But there is a difference in looking a kid who's 10 feet away from you in the eyes and seeing their reflection, seeing how they take subject matter seeing how they're having, what kind of day they're having. There is a difference in that and looking through a computer screen at a student. Our teachers are, stri- are striving to figure out how do we make that the best. As far as instruction, what they're getting delivered, no, we're get- they're getting the equivalent deliverance of uh, subject matter. It's just hard when you're not looking at somebody and able to, to walk up into the power zone and, and really help them. It's difficult. Yeah, that's a good point, Ricky. Give, give us an idea. What happens if a student in a classroom starts showing symptoms uh, of, of the virus? Do, do you shut down the school? Do you shut down the classroom? What, what's your plan there at Keene ISD? Well, we definitely have had that already in the first five days. You've already had it? Oh, yeah. You, but also, people got to realize how busy a nurse's station is, even during the regular school, especially at the elementary. You know, some of us that were secondary people all our lives, we don't realize that it's a constant flow a kid with a tummy ache, a kid with a sore throat, a kid with, Mm. and so we have had some of those. And what happens is a student who's got one of the symptoms is immediately sent to the nurse's office. Our teachers call the nurse so that they don't walk into the nurse's office unannounced. We have a triage station set up outside the nurse's office in all our campuses. And what it is, it's a, uh, it's just a little spot where there's a desk where a teacher or the nurse can determine whether or not that is a symptom of COVID or if it's just a normal run-of-the-mill everyday symptom. If it's COVID, they go into the isolation room and immediately their parents are called to come get them. If they have that, if they have those symptoms, then they're able to clean that triage area so that we don't get cross-contamination. If it's a normal everyday 
kind of thing, they go straight to the nurse's office. The, te- the parents then come get their child. We recommend that they go see a doctor and possibly get tested. Of course, we can't require them but, to be tested. Yeah, what happens in the district, though? Or what do you all do with the other students in the classroom, with the teacher, with the actual classroom itself or the school? So what happens is we, we take the kids out of that classroom. We immediately come in and clean it. We bought an electromagnetic sprayer about a week ago. We were fortunate to get one. They're hard to find right now. Our athletic director has access to it, and he is pretty much on call to come to those classrooms, and he does a deep cleaning. It takes about 45 minutes to clean that room. The students go somewhere else to do something else, and then they come back in, and they're able to continue to have class. If it happens to happen at the end of the day, then our custodial group comes in and does the deep cleaning during the night, and our students mm-hmm. are able to come back. That's one of the beauties of them all wearing masks is that supposedly they're able to avoid close contact by wearing those masks. So, so, so far you've had to do this deep cleaning several times. Uh, just to uh, underscore here, though, these are f- for kids who have shown a symptom, right. perhaps. Have you all had any positive cases that you know of uh, yet in the district uh, since you all started? We have not. Uh, everyone and of- does that change the game a lot if you do? Well, the, the ones we had go home last week with symptoms. We had a strep. We had a food poisoning from the night before. And we had mm-hmm. aller- allergic reaction to chocolate milk, I believe. So we were fortunate in those. Where it does change when it's a positive is it, it triggers our notification system. So when a student or a teacher tests positive, then the entire campus gets a letter sent home. The kids that are in that class get a letter sent home. Actually, we do the deep cleaning. We put the mask on by our protocol and our students come back to school and continue to go the next day. We did have a teacher test positive the week before school started with no kids around so we kind of had a dry run of going through that notification with just the teachers that they were around and they're they're at home with their protocol now about to be through with their with the cdc protocol so ricky this is a political podcast yolitics is Uh, i'm curious how as uh you know a, a district leader you see your way through the politics on this because from the white house down to the state house in austin even even you know commissioner's court everyone has their own thoughts about you know when kids should go back how they should go back etc um has has it have you had a lot of conflicting messages here or have you always kind of been set since day one on how we're going to do this we really try to look at the data and try to look at the facts and to be honest with you that's very difficult in today's media to wade through the facts and wade through the fear we are blessed to have a very good local a health authority that is our school doctor, if you want to put it that way. She works uh, one of the major hospitals in the DFW area, and she has come in to multiple meetings and given us the facts. And the facts and the percentage of kids, we have less than half a percent of our population in Keene had tested positive for COVID over the first six months of the epidemic. We just didn't feel like that the negative effects of keeping kids home were outweighed by that half percent of our population that had COVID. So we felt like bringing our kids back because there's so many emotional and mental and developmental needs that our kids, nutritional needs that our kids are missing out on every day uh, that we felt like the facts pointed toward us opening school, bringing them back. How about the, you know, the state was essentially 
holding the, the state funding over your head too, over all the districts, saying if you don't get them back in the class after eight weeks, we're, we're going to yank your funding. Was that a, a factor in your decision to reopen? Not really. We had decided back in May that we were going to start on the 4th of August. And as that time came, hmm. uh, we really we tried to let those things not affect what we were doing. We would make a decision that's best for our students and our teachers, irregardless of the funding. Now, obviously, if they really did pull the funding, <laughs> we're done because that's how we're funded. But we did not have that as a that did not push us to go uh, early. Ricky, your 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 positive rate uh, there, that or the number of people who've tested positive there, as you mentioned, is really low. Um, do you think that you would have had cold cold feet here if you had been in one of these hot spots? Uh, I mean, I'm sure that you think about these other superintendents around the state who are in some of these areas where we've just seen uh, an incredible number of cases. Do you think that that would have changed your calculus entirely? Yeah, I do. I believe one of the beauties of um, especially Texas is local control. I just feel like that we're so big in such a large state that you've got to give the, the local entities control of what to do. Because I'll tell you another thing that would have changed uh, my opinion would have been if I'd have been a, a superintendent of a district of 10,000 that stretched over 20 miles instead of a district of 1,100 that stretched over about five miles. Uh, mm-hmm. I think all those things make a big difference. And that's why I think it's very important that local communities are able to decide uh, the right time to do a lot of things, not only COVID, but there's a lot of decisions that we make that our neighbor next door may not. Never do we ever think that we have the way, but we really try to be good on having a way. Well, that goes right back to the politics of this then. It, should this be a, 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 a situation where we do have local control and uh, the, the funding is not held over the heads of districts and they can decide that, man, if things are really bad where you are, take longer than that eight weeks if you have to you figure it out yeah i don't i'm not real sure where i stand on that to be honest um i think that i think that people have a great argument if down the road we still haven't reopened i think that an argument of where's our taxpayer money going um Hmm. i'm not saying i agree with it i'm just saying it's a valid argument and so i'm not real sure i mean obviously a four to eight week delay is a good thing you have four weeks that you can take automatically and then another four if your board is unanimously behind it. I think two months into this thing, we're going to see, kind of know where we're at. And I think that there'll be some adjustments made. Uh, TEA, bless their heart, has done a heck of a job. Mike Morath is, uh, I mean, he's never going to make everybody happy. But my goodness, what a job to have right now. But they do tend to change the rules every two or three days. And that's difficult. And I know it's I know it's necessity to a large degree, but they'll make one statement and then a, a large school district or a small school district that has their ear will, you know, bring something up and they'll come back and they'll tweak it a little bit. And it, it's difficult for us superintendents that are trying to make policy and trying to do things. We fear every Tuesday, Thursday, you're getting some new guidance that changes what we've already been doing. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. <laughs> Hey, Ricky, before we let you go, um, have you heard from any other districts uh, to see how things are going? Or is uh, Yolitics the first call you've gotten on this, man? From other districts, we, we communicate routinely. That's a great thing. About a decade ago, it seemed to change where the competition among districts kind of went away. Back in the old days, you wouldn't tell anybody anything. Now, I mean, we're on the phone, we're texting, <laughs> we're Facebooking. The, the superintendent network is a very strong 
and very good thing. And it's really helping us because there's some things that, that we would have missed had somebody not called and reminded us. And I'm hoping that we provided some, some guidance for others. But, but have you had anybody give you a call or text or Facebook message since all this, uh, since you got underway last Tuesday to see how things are going? You're talking about uh, media wise? No, no, just from fellow superintendents across oh, yeah. the state. <laughs> many, many, many. I'd say five mm. to 10 a day, probably. Wow, phone's wow. getting blown up wow. there. It's, so if I'm one of these districts uh, reaching out to you, Ricky, uh, what's the, if I'm saying to you, dude, give me one piece of advice as I get ready to open up my district because you're going in front of me here, what's your one piece of advice for me? It would be to be prepared. Don't be surprised when all of a sudden things come up in the middle of the day that can shake you. If you're making decisions based on data, you're making decisions based on what you think is the best for your kids and your community, uh, I think you're gonna sleep good at night and go forward with it. You just gotta make sure that you that you realize that COVID's not gonna just take a break just because we started school. We're gonna have kids come positive, we're gonna have teachers turn up positive. Uh, the starting school was not waiting until it was vanished, it was mitigating the spread. And we're doing the best we can, and I know everybody around the state's going to do the best they can to mitigate the spread of this this pandemic as we start school. And Ricky, any uh, message to state leaders, to Governor Abbott, to Mike Morath, or anyone else? Now, honestly, I think they're doing as good a job as they can with the with the hand they've been dealt. It is difficult decisions to make when you're dealing with a state that's bigger than most countries, um, and I just ask them to stay consistent, stay steady and don't yo-yo us around. And they've done a fairly good job of that. Ricky Stevens, the superintendent of Keene ISD. Uh, Ricky, thank you for taking the time out of what I know uh, are really busy days right now uh, to talk with us. I, probably since just we've had you on here, you probably got like four or five more of those text <laughs> messages from supers across the state. Uh, but thank you very much. We really appreciate it. And we wish you and your teachers and your students and parents there all the best. Jason, Jason, thank you all. So Keene ISD, 1,100 students just south of Fort Worth, as we mentioned there. But Keene is a micro look at, you know, what a lot of districts would like to see happen. They have 89 teachers there. Let's get a a macro look at this thing, a much wider look. Back up 30,000 feet here and and see what it's like for the anxiety that teachers have going back. Yeah, you know, parents want their kids to go back businesses want you know the kids to be back so parents can return to work if they can or at least refocus on this but teachers are still not sold on this and hey i don't i don't blame them jason Okay, so teachers, uh, of course, are a really big stakeholder in all of this because they're actually the ones who are going to be in the classrooms with our kids. And uh, I don't know if you've walked into uh, a room or a store lately that has been more crowded than what you have seen early on in the pandemic. Maybe you know what that feels like when you're surrounded by a bunch of people. Well, that's what they're going to be dealing with every day once they go back to in-person instruction. And so we're going to take that broader view now with the Texas State Teachers Association, uh, which uh, is the largest union for teachers in the state of Texas. Yeah, so we called down to Austin and we got Ovidia Molina on the line. She's with the TSTA. TSTA. 
no, we don't like what we're seeing. We, we really want um, to ensure that our students, our staff, the community, family members are all safe. And we are not, we, we don't believe um, having in-person schools at this time is the safest thing to do. And you've basically put out as an organization uh, sort of an open letter to Governor Greg Abbott about this uh, just last week. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Uh, basically, you said this is your responsibility, and then you went on uh, in this correspondence to lay out the ways in which you feel like the governor hasn't met his responsibility. Well, it has been very frustrating, um, uh, the, the even thought of returning to, to school um, has, has just been all over the place. Um, when school districts started planning, uh, they were following certain criteria. And then that was changed. And then they started following the new changes. And that was changed. We've always said that it needs to be a community decision where uh, partners in um, the school district, school employees, parents, and health officials are the ones that are going to say when the schools can reopen for in-person teaching. Uh, and once we started talking to health officials, that was pulled as well. And so it's very frustrating to to not get the support from the state or TEA on making ensuring that our students and, and our staff is safe. So next week, uh, a lot of school districts will reopen, some of the largest ones, especially in North Texas. Um, what, what are you hearing from from teachers though, are, are they not gonna go back to class? They need a paycheck, right? We are hearing from many educators who do need a paycheck. This is their career, this is their passion, this is what uh, they've studied so hard for, uh, as well as our um, custodians and, and our lunch ladies and gentlemen, and you know, all these people that truly create the, the school atmosphere that are there for our students are now having to decide whether they are going to risk themselves or risk their families by returning. And we have some great people um, that are very dedicated that are choosing not to return. We are having some people that are preparing to return and creating plans on how they will uh, come back home and sort of try to make themselves as safe as possible or um, some people who are planning for the worst and creating uh, plans for if they don't survive returning back to school. Uh, Ovidia, can you uh, just kind of fill us in here? So uh, the governor uh, has laid out that he's you know, got all of this PPE available, this personal protective equipment available for when uh, in-person classes resume full scale here in Texas. He's uh, touted that uh, the state has set aside 60 million masks, uh, for instance. Uh, and I saw that you all uh, tweeted out about that and, uh, you know, talked about what the habits will be of students and how those masks won't last long, you think. Right. So so understanding that uh, Texas has over five million students, uh, when you break down the math, even for a person that's a history teacher, not a math teacher, yeah. you, you can readily make the, the math uh, work and say that's about 10 masks, 11 masks um, per student. And uh, depending on what grade level you are, uh, I don't think you can even hold on to a mask the whole day. So what happens after two weeks? The governor has said, oh, we're gonna have masks. Well, we didn't have them before. And if you're taking account those 5 million students, what about the educators and the school employees? Who's gonna give them masks? And what's gonna happen with, when the equipment runs out? What's gonna be the protocol for um, schools that don't have the equipment 
what what's the recourse for um, trying to ensure that this, the school stays safe? Uh, if we don't have the equipment, can we close down? Um, not according to what we've heard. Um, even health officials can't close you down to prevent a death. So over the weekend, Ovidia, I was reading about um, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out and said there's since you know July 1st, I believe, there's, what, 90,000 students across the country um, who have developed COVID, uh, tested positive for COVID after attending summer camps. But the pediatrics, uh, American Academy of Pediatrics continued on to say that, you know, very few of them actually ended up in the hospital. And, and I don't know if any actually died. At what point? I mean, don't kids have to get back at some point? We want to ensure that our students return to a safe uh, environment. Uh, and it also um, has to do a lot with how that safety is created. And it's created with adults and by adults. And if we bring in the students who could carry the disease and carry it to a potential school employee or bring it back from school to a family member, that's the thing that worries us uh, is keeping our communities and our school employees safe to continue having a safe education for well, our students. Well, because let me ask you this. If we have a breakdown in education, that's also going to traumatize what our What would you like to see happen? We would like to see health officials really having uh, the power to say, based on data, when it is safe to reopen our schools. So just to be clear here, you're not looking for uh, a, a central authority, let's say the governor coming out and saying, hey, everybody does online learning until I say otherwise. You're looking for local control, essentially, so that different areas can determine what is best for them going forward, what's best for the kids, what's best for the teachers and the families. We have reached out to the governor, um, as you mentioned in, in our previous letters, uh, asking for him to take control of this, and he has passed the buck. He has said it is local control, and when locals um, tried to take that control, he took that away from them by saying that health officials could not close uh, schools. Um, and so we are asking for, we, we asked for schools not to open till September 8th, uh, to not even think about reopening. So September 8th, uh, the governor came back and said, no, they have the control. They have four weeks, they have eight weeks. But the reality is we're still not sure how the funding is going to work. So local school districts don't have the control because they are still tied to the funding and the uncertainty of what the state and TEA is going to do when it comes to that. And so there is no real local control. We do want local control. We want communities to decide based on the data, based on the information, and based on a local plan. And that is not the case at this time. What's your message for state leaders, for Governor, Governor Abbott, for Mike Morath, the TEA commissioner, for you know the, the whole lot of them? Uh, our message is to step it up, just like they told us to do. Um, educators have been stepping it up. We need our leaders to step it up. We need them to, to actually lead and, and give us some kind of relief uh, from the anxiety of a life or death situa situation at this time. We want to be supported. We want to have the support from our state and our leaders uh, in ensuring that our students, our staff, the community is safe. You all have not been sparing about taking the message uh, to the governor in very public ways. I'm wondering, has he reached out privately? Has he responded? The governor has not reached out to us at this time. 
And I was going to ask you, so uh, a lot has been said here. Uh, You've been hearing from a lot of your members all across this state. Has there been a consideration at any point of saying, well, maybe we as a group will decide that we're not going back to work, essentially a a strike? Has that been talked about? In the state of Texas, uh, if an educator decides to strike, they are um, putting up their certification and the, their pension. So it's, it's a very big um, threat for educators. Uh, it is illegal to strike in Texas, but there, there comes a point where um, it's not necessarily gonna be a strike, but it's gonna be a, a district decision based on the, um, the number of people that cannot show up to work. And that's what we wanna ensure is that we set up our students to be successful. We open our schools when it is safe and when we can continue to keep them open in a safe manner. Just to draw that out a little bit, so what you're saying is we may reach a point when there are enough educators who just can't be at work that day or who don't feel well or what have you, that school can't even happen in some cases. That is our biggest fear, is that we are going to have educators so sick that we are going to have educators continue to die because it's not even a, an assumption that they may die. We've already had educators die from COVID during the summer and, and this month. Um, and we don't want that to continue. And so there may come a time, you know, our educators are asking themselves, if I get sick, how am I going to take the 14 days? Who's going to pay for that? If I get sick, what substitute is going to want to come into this situation? So, yes, there, there may not be an educator there that's going to take that spot. That's a good point. Yeah, you raise a good point about the 14 days. Is there a disincentive there for me, if I'm a teacher, to tell my administrators that I'm not feeling so great if I don't have that 14-day window of quarantining at home taken care of by someone else? Maybe do I just keep quiet and try to soldier through it uh, thinking maybe it's just a cold or something. I don't want to bring it up because I don't want to, you know, be sent away. And and that's yet another issue that, that may come up um, because, as you mentioned before, this is how they pay their bills. They're returning to school when it is dangerous because it is how uh, it's their livelihood. It's how they pay for um, housing for their families, the meals, uh, and it becomes a non-decision. They, they, they have no choice, and, and that should not be uh, the case. Um, absent of vaccine, will it ever really be safe, though, to go back to school? Yet another unknown question. Um, we have not done a very good job of uh, ensuring that the cases um, are, are going as fast as they were going up, going down. And so the, the reality is there, we, it may not be safe until there's a vaccine. And uh, the question then is, why can't we do remote learning or virtual learning until it is safe when we have that? Ovidia, uh, my last question for you is that we, you know, just before we talked to you, we spoke with the superintendent of Keene ISD, uh, which is a small district in North Texas. Uh, they started back to school a week ago. 
and he uh, passed along that he was surprised by how smoothly things have gone uh, and that everything has gone okay so far. They've got 800 students who are learning in person, 200 who are online. And uh, he, was, uh, he remarked especially about the fact that uh, so many kids showed up to school with their own masks and wore them all day and didn't have to be constantly told to pull them up or put them on. Does that reassure you at all, or is that a sample size at this point that's uh, too short and too small? I, I continue to wish them well uh, in, in that, um, and yes, it is too small a sample size. Um, our, our cities that are have bigger school districts, more students, uh, and have more low social economic um, students coming to the school. I mean, we, we, we realize our, the school system is such a big part of our students uh, based on their needs um, that I, I don't know if that will be the case for all of Texas. So if things are going swimmingly in that small district. We may see a very different story when we see these really large districts go back to class. Yes, and it, it goes back to the continued underfunding of our public schools. Jason, two conversations from two different parts of the state, two different people don't know each other, most likely. But here's what struck me in both of them. And mm-hmm. we didn't ask about this. They both said it to us. And mm-hmm. that's local control, local control. And we saw early on the governor was all about handing off local control. He didn't want to mess with this. And then he yanks it back once the governor started getting a bunch of yeah. uh, you know flack from his base. So local control, as we go into... The next legislative session is likely going to flare back up again. And you have all kinds of mayors and county commissioners and everyone else who are all for it. State leaders say absolutely not. Um, you know, and one of the things, uh, you know, so it's local control, basically, what we're going forward here. Local control with an asterisk next to it. Uh, and, you know, as your kids get ready to head back to school again, whether that's online or in person, uh, let us know what you're thinking right now. We know that there's uh, a lot going on in people's heads about this. Uh, on Twitter, we are at Yolitics, Y-A-L-L-I-T-I-C-S. Also, like everybody else, we're still waiting. Uh, Joe Biden has uh, really uh, dragged this out. He's making us wait for it, but he's supposed to be coming out with this vice presidential pick this week. Uh, we heard that last week as well, but we're hearing it this week. So uh, we'll see what happens with that and and, and, and hopefully get into that uh, here in the future. Also, we are planning to do an episode coming up. You know, Jason, we talk about this all the time. Like, man, you could almost have the election now, tomorrow, the next day, because it seems like people are in their camps. They have decided they're ready to go. They want their ballot and they just want to get this over with. Turns out uh, there's some literature out now that says no. There are still a number of people who call themselves undecided going into this election. That might come as a shock to some of our listeners, uh, maybe not to some others. And so we have a poll going on our Yolitics Twitter page right now. Uh, Are you one of the undecideds? Have you made up your mind or are you still undecided going into the November election, which is right down the stretch from us here? We are in the home stretch now. Go to Yolitics on Twitter, Y-A-L-L-I-T-I-C-S, and uh, 
cast your vote. I'm curious to see how this is going to turn out. I'm going to retweet it on my account. Jason, you'll do the same thing on yours. Right. And next Tuesday, when we talk to you again, we'll tell you how everyone voted. Yeah, this is the big vote before the vote. (laughs) We'll see you all next week.